we're born hardwired to connect. And it's actually the title of a committee report, like a blue ribbon committee on what, you know, what's behind the, mental, the current mental health crisis for children. And so basically what they say is there is, we don't have, we've lost sight of, of how to build the rich set of connections that kids need to be healthy uh, and adults need to be healthy. Um, but, so we're born, at, at, you know, babies born into the world, their nervous, the, the sort of developmental processes of their nervous system exist because of this evolutionary history. And in that evolutionary history, when they were born, there was a caregiver who provided them sensitive, responsive, nurturing care. And so we, you know, we're, we're quite willing to say that, you know, an infant doesn't know that they're, you know, they're, they're ignorant of, of a lot of things. But what we don't seem to be so willing to say is they need us to connect with them. Good morning, or good uh, whatever and wherever you are. Welcome to my morning ritual. I'm going to get, just jump right into it. I've got a lot of ground to cover, and I want to uh, read a couple of things, and we'll, we'll just get started. There are a lot of players and moving parts in today's conversation with today's participant, Dr. David Cross. And I want to fill in some of the blanks, take advantage of, uh, of this intro piece so I can fill in some of the blanks. We reference a couple of people, and um, I, I want you as the listener to be able to, to know who they are before, um, before we get started. So you hear David and I, um, and let me, let me just go ahead and introduce you to David first. I'm going to read his bio, and then I will uh, fill in a couple of blanks. Dr. David Cross is the Reese Jones Director of the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development and a professor in the TCU Department of Psychology. Dr. Cross leads the Institute in its triple mission of research, education, and outreach to improve the lives of children who've experienced abuse, neglect, and or trauma. He's authored many peer-reviewed publications about issues regarding at-risk children. Dr. Cross earned his B.S. from California State University Fresno with a major in psychology and then attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor for graduate study beginning in 1980. He earned an M.A. in psychology and an M.A. in statistics. He later earned a Ph.D. in education and psychology in 1985. He accepted a position as assistant professor in TCU's Department of Psychology. Dr. Cross and his former colleague, Dr. Karen Purvis, co-authored The Connected Child, Bringing home, excuse me, bringing hope and healing to your adoptive family. 
to help adoptive parents understand the needs of children from hard places. The Connected Child continues to be the bestseller among adoption books. Together, Doctors Purvis and Cross created Trust-Based Relational Intervention, TBRI, a holistic, attachment-based, trauma-informed, and evidence-based intervention for children who have experienced relational trauma. Dr. Cross and his staff at the Institute regularly train professionals from around the world in TBRI. The Institute is actively engaged in research that not only demonstrates the efficacy of TBRI as an evidence-based intervention, but also in research about how to grow trauma-informed organizations and communities. In addition to his responsibility at the Institute, Dr. Cross teaches many TCU courses, including case studies in child development, generalized linear models, and graduate developmental psychology. David is a friend and has been a mentor for many years. I am a product of uh, the Institute uh, in, in part. I have worked in, uh, you'll hear us talk about the camp, and I worked really closely in, in one of those camps. And really attribute um, a lot of my own professional development to um, Dr. Cross and Dr. Purvis. Okay, I'm going to jump away from that and give a little background on um, the Institute, because you're going to hear us talk about the Institute and, uh, and TBRI. The Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development is a program of the Department of Psychology and the TCU College of Science and Engineering in Fort Worth, Texas. Our mission is research, education, training, and outreach to improve the lives of children who have experienced abuse, neglect, and or trauma. Our research and interventions are empowering parents, professionals, and students with trauma-informed strategies that improve outcomes for children and for youth. The Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development was created as an outgrowth of the Hope Connection, a research and intervention project developed in 1999 by Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. David Cross. The Hope Connection began as a summer camp for adopted children who experienced early orphanage care. The results proved so remarkable they sparked a compelling scientific and personal journey for Drs. Purvis and Cross. By the end of the first week and into the second week of camp, they saw dramatic changes in attachment, social competency with peers, and in language. These outcomes formed the empirical foundations for trust-based relational intervention, TBRI, a model for children from hard places. Beyond the camp setting, TBRI has made remarkable changes in the lives of children and youth since the days of the first Hope Connection camp, which focused on families who adopt children from hard places. The Institute has expanded its focus by training professionals who work in a variety of caregiving contexts, including foster homes, residential settings, courtrooms, and classrooms. In 2016, the Institute began a new chapter of its history by changing its name from TCU Institute of Child Development to Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development in honor, in honor of the late Dr. Purvis. Not only Karen, but the Institute has been going worldwide to help the world raise children. It's certainly children from hard places, and what I've found in my practice is that it's not just for children from hard places. They work at in, in the most traumatized populations. And also, I have used these approaches with every family I work with. These are, you'll hear David and I talk about this. These are, these are ways of behaving 
that the human being needs. So it, it, while, while they do all of their work with children from hard places, somebody like me is doing it in my office with every person that I work with. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the fundamentals, but essentially it, um, Karen always taught us about how kind of modern-day approaches to parenting and relationship, certainly to parenting, involve correction, and every time I've led any kind of parenting workshop, um, all of the questions are about how do I get this person um, or my child to stop doing, you know, fill in the blank. The approach, of course, is is one that's reactive. I want to get them to stop doing what I don't like that they're doing, and this this intervention and approach flips that and talks about, teaches how to connect first, and then you just don't have to correct as much. When you have trust, you move along fluidly rather than get bogged down in, you know, concerns about compliance and um, what what a child or what a person is doing wrong. And this is applicable to not only with children from hard places, but with all children and also with partners, marriages, friendships, if we would but orient ourselves to the absolute need of human beings to connect and be present, um, things would change up a lot. So I could I could go off on that, but uh, but I won't. I do want to read Karen's bio because he's uh, David Cross talks about Karen a lot, and Karen died in April of 2016. She's been an important person for the world, and I don't mean that. Um, as if I'm exaggerating. She has traveled around the world, worked with governments, worked with Congress, worked with courts, worked with, uh, you know, Ukraine, in Africa, in Australia, all over the world she's working to help. She has worked to help people kind of heal heal the wounds in themselves so they can show up for the people that they care about. So here is uh, a very important person in my life, and of course, Dr. Dr. Cross's life. Dr. Karen Purvis was the Reese Jones Director and co-founder of the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU in Fort Worth, Texas, the co-creator of Trust-Based Relational Intervention, co-author of a best-selling book in the adoption genre, and a passionate and effective advocate for children. She coined the term children from hard places to describe the children she loved and served those who've suffered trauma, abuse, neglect, or other adverse conditions early in life. Her research-based philosophy for healing harmed children centered on earning trust and building deep emotional connections to anchor and empower them. Among academics, she was a respected researcher, demonstrating how a child's behavior, behavior, neurochemistry, and life trajectory can change given the right environment. Among parents, she was an authoritative speaker and writer and trainer. Many adoptive parents who marveled at her innate ability to playfully connect and see the real heart of a child revered her as a, quote, child whisperer to the thousands of children whose lives she touched. She was warmly known as Miss Karen, the bubblegum queen. A mother, grandmother, foster parent, pastor's wife, and developmental psychologist, Dr. Purvis devoted her life to serving children. In the last decade, she and her team at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development taught and inspired tens of thousands of parents, 
professionals, foreign dignitaries, political leaders, orphanage and adoption workers, lawmakers, judges, and child advocates around the world about the need for trauma-informed care and trust-based interventions for vulnerable children. Quote, If I could tell you my dream for every child in the world, it would be to imagine a world where the cry of every child is met by a loving, compassionate adult, she once told an interviewer. Giving voice to children is the heart and soul of what we do. Her parents met and married in Quantico, Virginia, after serving time in the Marines during World War II. In 1954, the family moved to McAllen, Texas, where her father became one of the world's largest onion growers and a longtime mayor of McAllen. A self-described daddy's girl, Karen, recalled accompanying her father into the slums of McAllen, where he distributed food and worked to improve living conditions for migrant workers. She watched her mother offer aid to the sick and elderly in her neighborhood and church. As a child, she took in stray and wounded animals. As a teenager, she mentored at-risk children and trained horses. By age 20, she married Barton per- Burton Purvis. A graduating senior, she met at Howard Payne University, a small Southern Baptist college in Brownwood, Texas. She quit school after her sophomore year to move with her husband, a new minister, to Daytona Beach, Florida, where the couple started a ministry for street kids. She spent the next 30 years of her life raising her own sons and ministering alongside her husband as the embodiment of the ideal pastor's wife, trusted and loved. Besides rescuing stray and injured animals, she loved to create beautiful crafts and calligraphy of Scripture. And at age 47, as her sons began college, Karen returned to school to complete her undergraduate degree. In 1999, she and her mentor and advisor, Dr. David Cross, offered a summer camp for adopted children as a research project toward her doctorate in child development. Parents report such dramatic improvements with their children, they clamored for help. That became the Hope Connection, and after more research and more camps, Karen added a Ph.D. to her title as psychologist at the age of 53. Just a few years later, in 2005, TCU formally created the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development to house and to advance the work of Drs. Purvis and Cross. Over the course of the next decade, they teamed up to write their acclaimed book, The Connected Child, and to create a holistic, comprehensive, research-based approach to healing vulnerable children called Trust-Based Relational Intervention. In just over a decade, under Dr. Purvis' leadership, the message and teachings of the Institute have increased exponentially to reach an audience spanning the U.S. and more than 25 other countries around the world. Her passion and novel, research-proven insight led to interviews and news coverage in Newsweek, the Chicago Tribune, the Dallas Morning News, Forward Star Telegram, KERA Radio, Dateline, NBC, Focus on the Family, Parents Magazine, and Fourth Weekly and countless other media outlets, blogs, and webinars. In 2008, the governor of Texas appointed her to chair a statewide committee tasked with raising standards for children in foster care. The National Council on Adoption honored Dr. Purvis with the title of Distinguished Fellow in Adoption and Child Development. She's received the James Hammerstein Award, the T. Barry Brazelton Award for Infant Mental Health Advocacy, a Healthcare Hero Award from the Dallas Business Journal, and numerous other awards and honors for her work on behalf of her children. What mattered most to Dr. Purvis, however, was not the accolades, but seeing real change and healing in the lives of children and their families. She was driven to make a difference, and this work became her life purpose. She believed passionately and fervently in the power of hope, knowledge, and prayer. Karen, I really mean this, Karen was um, was truly a, a great person, and she did a lot for the world. 
So we'll jump into it now. Um, pardon the, uh, the reading so much, but I, I really wanted to get all that out there to provide some context. If you're interested in learning more or getting any information on the Institute or Karen or Dr. Cross, you can get them at child.tcu.edu. There are tons of resources on that page and a lot of video you can stream if you're interested. So check it out. They've done a great job of providing resources for, uh, really, for the world. The only other thing I want to note is the the band, your, your, the Theme music is by Modern Nations. Get them at modernnations.com. The song today is by Shadows of Jets. And the uh, the singer and producer of this band is an old friend of mine who played in my band for many years. And I'm really excited to uh, to include his work in uh, their work in, uh, in this episode. Uh, his name is Taylor Tatch. The band, of course, is Shadows of Jets. And they've got a Facebook page where you can find them. And if you'd like to find anything about this podcast, go to thesacredspeaks.com or it's searchable on uh, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I know this has been a lot, but uh, I really wanted to get that all in. And now we'll leave it there. So where does this begin? For you, you think? One of the things I was thinking about earlier when we were having dinner is because uh, you said something about sharing my story, and I'm happy to share my story. But it, you know, my story was I guess I was a kid from hard places. So my parents were alcoholic, they lost custody of me, I was in the child welfare system for a while. And, and it's certainly the case that impacted me. Um, but the stuff that you and I have talked about, like Spinoza, it doesn't start with that, I don't think. Um, I mean, they're like parallel lines in my journey or in my narrative or parallel themes or something. Um, I think I think where I, I think where this started, was I had the extraordinarily good fortune to um, land with a foster family that gave me a lot of freedom. And particularly, I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in the woods, just in the wilds. And, and so I remember um, uh, I took a psycholinguistics class as, a, as an undergraduate. And one of the things the professor was trying to get across um, the sort of the relativity of our concepts <laughs> and how they depended on, you know, who we were and what our experiences were. And, um, and it didn't seem like anybody in the class was getting it. And so I, you know, I raised my hand because I'd had. I had had um, experiences where I felt like, and this was as a young person, this was like, you know, 16, 17, 18, 
where I felt like I was communing with the trees. And I don't mean like, I don't, they weren't talking to me and I, you know, and sometimes I'd talk to them, but it just felt like there was a resonance there. And it certainly felt good. And, um, and more recently, just, you know, in my life, I had the opportunity to get back into uh, some wilderness area. And it felt like my, you know, it, it, um, I can't, you know, it, there was a, it was an experience. It felt like my soul, it fed my soul like not many things else does. So anyway, so going back to this class, um, he'd asked a question and something, and I, and, and, and I don't even remember now what the question was, but my answer was, you know, to, uh, to uh, a logger, a tree is so many cubic feet of wood, you know, to a homeowner, it's shade, you know, to, and so, and for me, and I shared some of my experiences, it's almost like a tree is a friend. And it's, so I think that sort of sense of uh, belonging in a really uh, natural and kind of intimate way in nature uh, was kind of the roots of my philosophical self, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I know another really big something I read uh, pretty much everything John Steinbeck wrote when I was in my late teens and particularly Grapes of Wrath just spoke to me and I read Siddhartha and and, you know that whole series and um, and so there were some things that I was reading then that really spoke to me but in terms of um, sort of pulling it all together if you will and and, this I had this, I was going to, I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara and I was studying philosophy and I had this one professor and I took him for his, it was uh, like continental philosophy course. So it was, or it was a history of philosophy course. And so went through the whole thing, two semesters or, or two quarters or three quarters probably. Um, and then he also taught a course on Descartes and a course on Spinoza. And that course on Spinoza is, is kind of where I, you know, North Star is not quite the right term, but something like that, where I just I found my comfort zone. And, and his, uh, this professor, his name was Paul Weenpaul. He was the chair of the Department of Philosophy at UCSB. And um, he had trained as a Zen monk and Buddhist monk in Japan, uh, spent several years over there. And his contention was, was that you can't, you, you, if you, you can't understand Spinoza unless you come at him from the perspective of Zen Buddhism. And his contention also was is that Spinoza was the first modern philosopher. And he's the first, in, you know, his, you know, part of that was he's the first philosopher who resolved the mind-body problem. And he resolved um, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, you know the, what is God? and what's the nature of God and so and it really spoke to me because 
I don't know, you know, um, it spoke to me, I think it spoke to me in part because, first of all, Wien Paul was so rigorous in his intellectual approach. I mean, he was so honest and so transparent, and there was no bullshit. I mean, it was all, you know, trying to, you know, really trying to get it what's true. And, and he, uh, uh, and I think the other, you know, uh, and, and so him and Spinoza were a great pair because that was also Spinoza. Spinoza's, I think his whole enterprise was shedding all the misconceptions and the, all of the uh, lies we tell ourselves, both intellectual and otherwise, and really trying to determine what is really true from first principles. Um, so, they had a profound impact me and so on me. So lots of times, or sometimes when people say, you know, uh, you know, who are you? Are you Christian? Are you Buddhist? Whatever. I, I'll say I'm a Spinozan. Hmm. And most of the time people have no idea what I mean right. by that. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm not even sure, to be honest, what I mean by that. Um, I also, you know, just in terms of who I am, in terms of spirituality, I don't think you can grow up in our culture and not be Christian in some sense. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because like you, I was raised as a Methodist. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, it was part of the, you know, the, the air I breathed was, you know, um, going to church and so on. Um, but Spinoza was, and so um, I think, I, it, I hadn't really thought about this before, but I think what really attracted me to him was the clarity, what, at least what I perceived to be the clarity of his spot. And there's no nonsense. You know, I think lots of times I've tried reading a number of other philosophers, and I just don't get very far because it seems like it's all, they, they, it seems like they're creating some kind of edifice to solve what's really a pretty simple um, problem. But um, so Spinoza has has had a big impact on me, and I know that. Um, so one of the things that, um, one of the ideas, and I don't know if this was Wien Paul's metaphor or if this was um, Spinoza's metaphor, but uh, he, he, what, and I'm pretty sure it was Spinoza's, but the, the idea that what we are, the, 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 the metaphor he used to teach about life and death was we're like a wave on the ocean of being and in that in in that we have a time when we have consciousness and we have uh we are a you know a, an identifiable entity so we're like this wave passing along but then when the end comes um we just dip down and we're you know we're part of the you know we, we merge back with the whole thing. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine uh, just the other day about life and death. And uh, he was saying that he believed 
that our energy um, was what was preserved. And I was saying that, well, it seems to me that what what's preserved is maybe energy, but I, I think of it in terms of pattern. So like just taking this conversation with you, this is, you know, this, this will have an impact on how you think. Mm -hmm. And, and then when you think about my children and my, the, my colleagues who I spend a lot of time with and, and my friends, you know, we, we mutually shape each other. And, and I think those things are like, you know, ripples through time and place. Um, and, and I'm very comfortable with that. I had, I recently had a, uh, recently had a heart attack, which was a pretty scary experience. And I had to be taken by, you know, taken, you know, to the ER and had triple bypass and a stent and the whole thing. And, uh, they, they got me through the original crisis and then they scheduled, and it was great because they put a stent in f at first and into this artery they call the Widowmaker. And I felt pretty good. And I said, I'm ready to go home. And they said, not so fast. You've, you've got some other serious blockage that we have to take care of. So um, uh, so they scheduled me for triple bypass surgery. And, and I had a, this, the surgeon I had was fantastic. But he hurt his back. So it was scheduled for a Wednesday. He hurt his back Tuesday night working in his yard. And so he couldn't do it. But that Tuesday night after everybody left, I was in a sense left alone with my maker, or you know, left alone with being in Spinoza's term, left alone with the prospect of my death. Because I had been told, well, there's a 95% chance you'll make it, but there's a 5% non-zero chance that you won't. So I was scared. And I'd laid in a hospital bed. And, you know, it's interesting because I'm not even sure what the process was. It wasn't really a conscious process. I mean, I, you know, I, I thought about some things. I'm not in, but after about two hours, I was at peace. And, uh, and I was ready to do it. And then, uh, then the, the next morning they told me it was canceled. So they rescheduled it for Friday, and I thought I might have to go through that whole process again. But Thursday night, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. I'm ready to do it. I was, you know, whether whether I lived or died, I was, I was, uh, I was at peace with it. And I think, you know, part of I think part of that was about embracing, you know, who Spinoza was, and you know what, you know, what his teachings were. So it reminds me a little bit of um, David Hume was uh, another one of my heroes. And I spent a lot, I've gone to Scotland. I spent a lot of time in Scotland taking students there and, you know, became quite a student of, of David Hume. And, um, and he was an atheist. I wouldn't say I'm an atheist, but uh, anyway, he was an atheist. And uh, one of the things that drove he, you know, the fact that he was so prominent and um, so forceful, you know, was really hard for f folks who were small-minded about their Christianity to take. 
but he died a very graceful death. His best friend was Adam Smith, and Adam Smith took care of his, you know, his, um, you know, whatever, you know, needed to be taken care of around his dying. But it was, uh, he wrote a letter, he wrote letters to all of his, you know, closest friends and, and family, and, um, but it was a gracious death. And, and so I know, I think that was, you know, influential on me also. So I've had this, I guess I've had this experience really where I guess who I am was tested and what I believe or was tested. And uh, I think I did okay. The, which I think brings me to something else, and I don't, I, you know, um, we were, we, you and I were talking at dinner and talking in the car, and, and I, was, I was thinking about your journey and how you're, you know, doing, the, the, doing these interviews and, you know, meeting so many interesting people. And by the way, it sounds to me like from what you said, you're, there's that, there's a you know you're you're interviewing folks who are a lot more interesting than I am, but you know that's <laughs> so one of the questions I've been asking myself. Well, why know. did he ask me to do this? But, anyway, but so you can you have my permission not to you know not to do anything with this. But anyway, I was thinking, um, you know what what re and this I think this kind of come you know this kind of comes back to you know like for example Spinoza he's he you know he. He, he purposefully didn't want to have a university position because he felt that would compromise his ability, in a sense, to see the truth, to discover the truth. And so he supported himself as a lens grinder. Is that because of the, the many different motivations that are coming into that? I mean, yeah, I think... Uh, Meaning our obligations is probably better. Maybe know. so. I know at the time, um, yeah, we, you know, I think there's two kinds of corrupting processes. One is we've kind of dealt with, and that is, so we, we talk a lot about academic freedom now. So it's unlikely that as a, you know, a faculty member in a psych department, I'm going to lose my job because of you know the theory i endorse or the type of research i do as mm -hmm. long as it's you know ethical um but in his time i think that wasn't the case so much so and but just then, give 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 it because uh, we're talking at like 16 1600s yeah 40 so, to, yes you know, later, there you go yeah, yep. yeah and but then i think there's another more interesting source of corruption which is has to do with you know, if you if you engage, like for me, the version of it I experience is as the director of the institute, I have to I have to engage with the TCU bureaucracy, right? And they're wonderful people, yeah. You know, and they really they have our best interest. They truly have, but it's a bureaucracy, right? <clears throat> and you become you have to be really careful you don't get warped by that um i think and you know, i think it he was in a he was an aesthetic i don't know how to say the word but he was an ascetic ascetic yeah, yeah. spinoza uh -huh. was 
And I, you know, and I think that I think that's a theme that runs through asceticism. Mm -hmm. Is um, and so he, you know, he wanted to be pure in that that way. So I think there was a kind of you know, and then I think, and this kind of comes back to what the point I was making was or wanted to make was. There's something about honest work, I mean, real work that grounds us. It's like you and I were talking about pulling the weeds earlier. Yeah. It's grounded. And I think that's such, you know, and, and I think coming back to earlier, some of the things we're talking about, I know for me, I think I'm, a, you know, I, I sometimes say I'm a better philosopher than I am a psychologist. But then I think, well, I'm not really that good at either one. But what the... Um, what grounds me is doing the real work of trying to make a difference. And, you know, that's, you know, and now in my life, a lot of that is about the work I've done together with Karen Purvis. And so, like the project I was telling you about, so what, you know, we're trying to build a, you know, to strengthen this community. This is one of our, pro many projects, but one of our projects is to strengthen this community, the professionals and the families and so on, so that they can better meet the needs of kids who've been trafficked. And, um, and even like this issue, you know, this insanity about, you know, separating, you know, immigrants, kids from their parents. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's not, that much that's that's it's it's not qualitatively different than what the Nazis did during World War II. It's just it's different only by a matter of degree, but it is uh, it's horrendous. And the thing, the part of it that scared me the most was when one of the folks who was in charge of that said, "I don't see what the problem is because we kept them we kept them warm and we." gave them food they had good food to eat mm -hmm. I mean that took us you know that's where this country was back in the 30s and 40s when we had baby hospitals for you know for orphanages you know and babies died you know by the hundreds so but this work anyway that's an aside um, the work I think you know and I think this is something the idea that doing real work grounds us and grounds in, in a sense our philosophy i think is and to me that's where the Taoists, you know again i you know we've talked about Taoism, so i can talk about it. i want to jump in because you're talking about practice and the phrase that is going through my mind is what when we talk about behavior we're talking about what we're living out like what in a concrete mm -hmm. way what we're living out mm -hmm. and how those things are connected to what matters to us or what doesn't. And one of the thoughts there is that whether it matters to you or not, what you're living out, you're making central to your life, to your existence. Yeah. And the, the, you're, you're swimming through all these kind of influential figures in your life. And I, I you know, you be the brakes, right? I, I can't help, but I'm sensitive to a couple of things. I'm sensitive to people listening who are, of course, saying, "Who in the hell is Spinoza?" That I'm all you. You reference the institute. Um, you reference kids from hard places, and you talked about your trauma early on, and and so I'm 
I'm I'm really interested in how what you think two two things that you think how they how this happened. First is how you got into philosophy and psychology in the first place. And then how that became a a container for you to begin to work with kids from hard places. Hmm. So just kind of putting those several things together and as much as, right. I don't know, I, sure. I'm a relational person, you know, and it, it's right. tends, I, I sit talking to people all day long every day, and so asking probing questions tends right. to be my, right. so I'll ask you about your personal content, right. give me the breaks. It's a really good question. So, um, so let me tell your listeners a little bit about what we do, mm-hmm. kind of the history of our yeah. work. Okay, Good. so up until um, about 2000, I was kind of your, your run-of-the-mill psychology professor, teaching my courses, doing some research on parenting and families. And, and I think I was a pretty good teacher, but I don't, the, the research I was doing I think it was good, but it wasn't extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. I was never going to be a big name in the field, then. Um, which was fine with me. I mean, I was I was having a good life. The and then this woman came into my life. She first of all, so this is Karen Purvis. She uh, she had raised her boys, sent them all off to college, and she came back to TCU to finish her her undergraduate degree. And she took my child psych class, and uh, she sat right there in the front row, and uh, she's like forty-five or something, and you got all these little eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-olds in there. So she stood; she kind of stood out like a sore thumb, and um, and she was, you know, really eager and really keen. And before long, she was, you know, working as a research assistant in my lab. And not too long after that, she was running my lab. And uh, then she decided uh, she decided to, uh, you know, well, I convinced her, and this is this is such a, I mean, just it's such a hard thing. She had been told all her life that she wasn't smart, that she, you know, was dumb. And uh, so I convinced her that she could do the doctoral program, and she just knocked the socks off all the tests, you know, the GRE and everything. Had one, of the, I think, pretty sure it's the highest score any students ever had in our program. And uh, wow. she, uh, anyway, so she got, she started doing her, getting her PhD. And then one day, make make a long story short here, um, well, she was actually we were doing a project. We were going out into parents' homes and interviewing them about sources of support for their kids. And we were using a methodology called the Neighborhood Walk, which was developed at UC Davis. And uh, she, we interviewed this mom, single mom, who had two adopted kids from Russia, and they were really in trouble. And um, that led to us doing our first summer camp. And the idea behind our first, and it was a summer camp for internationally adopted kids. I think there's a total of about 25 to 30 kids that came to that first camp. That would have been 1999. And, um, and the idea really was to give the parents respite to know they could leave their kids with a in a mm-hmm. you know safe place sure. you know in good hands because uh, that was so hard the kids were so behaviorally disordered that 
parents never got a chance to take a break. So that was really the, the, you know, the goal. But it turned out what mainly Karen did was therapeutic. And it was the most therapeutic things these kids had ever experienced. So one thing led to another. We did more camps. Then we realized when we realized we had a good thing, which we now call trust-based relational intervention, um, we started uh, training, doing training, training, first of all, training parents and then training professionals. And then we sort of graduated to intervening with organizations and helping them implement TBRI or trust-based relational intervention. And now we're doing community work mm-hmm. where it's like networks of organizations. So it's been a real ride and it's been, it's, there's a, a lot of joy in it because I truly believe we're making a, making a difference. And it's, it's like, you know, for me, it's like Spinoza's lens grind, grinding. Um, the, there's some, so, you know, and, you know, and what we've got, so if you think of, we, we call them partners, so we have what, what I think of as partners in implementation. So there's residential treatment centers, there's schools, there's shelters, there's churches, there's, um, I mean, almost any kind of, I mean, we're working in tribal, you know, with Native American tribes, we're working in inner city New Orleans. I mean, it just goes on everywhere. I mean, we're going all around the world now. So it's having an impact and it's spreading. Okay, so going back to some of these Taoist and Spinozan beliefs or principles, like say for example, so one of the things Spinoza talked about was was what I think we now call reification. So, for example, we have a word for God, and we sometimes we say He based on the biblical texts. So we think there's a, you know, like something like a person, or um, we think there's an ego. Mm-hmm. Well, just because we have a word for it, and so Spinoza was very suspicious of that, and. And we've encountered an aversion of that in this work because what I see happening, so when I, so what we did, my role in this work with Dr. Purvis at the Institute, I sometimes said I was like an an anthropologist on Venus. And so she was a child whisperer. I mean, she was a magician. She could- I've never seen anything like it. she, She was, you know, she could, I truly believe she could, you know, she could heal or at least help any child in the world and, um, or could have, um, my role, but she couldn't always, you know, she couldn't always analyze what she did. She couldn't always put what she did into words. So my role was to sort of create the, the manual, if you will of what TBRI was. And so our conversations, I'd say, you know, this is what you did. And she'd say, oh, that's it. And then I'd say, so this is what I think, you know, that means. And she'd say, no, no, that, you know, so we'd have these debates. Um, And that sort of was where, you know, that was the, the ground that TBRI grew out of, was her actions, my observations, and then our debates about what it meant and how to, you know, how to say it. 
And then, so, so TBRI went from what this woman, this highly talented woman did to a thing. And so what happens is a lot of people say, I want that thing. And in what I say, try to say, I mean, it's people I think have to experience this, but what I say is, you want to know what TBRI is? It's what this woman did. And, and actually, what even more so than that, it's not so much what she did, because what she was doing was, so it wasn't what she did, it was what she was doing. And what she was doing was meeting the needs of these kids. And, and so if you want to know what TBRI is in its essence, it's meeting the needs of the kids in front of you, or yeah, meeting the needs of the, whoever it is you're, try, you're, you're trying to help. But it's good. Well, let, let's be developmental psychologists for a second. And when you talk about meeting the needs of kids, you know, the kids that you've been working with for a long time suffered some wound early on, like five and below, mm -hmm. right? Oftentimes. And that creates a certain pattern, to use your term from earlier, right? I mean, when, when we as, when, when we, during our developmental age, those developmental ages, when we're overwhelmed by the world in ways that we're not meant to be overwhelmed, you know, because in part we're supposed to be protected and cared for and have our needs met in a particular way that satisfies, you know, on one level our biological system, but also our spirit, you know, that, mm -hmm. that begins to envision the world as a healthy, trusting place. But when, when, what I love about the Institute, you know, kids from hard places, kids from hard places suffer some kind of overwhelmment or abandonment or neglect, which is to say they do not get those core basic needs met early on. And so, and when that happens, it, these, whether it's behavioral or issues of thought, it, it, it creates these burdens that these kids carry with, uh, with them. And, um, it, it can be really difficult for themselves and for people involved in their lives, of course. So what you guys were doing um, was, you know, on one level creating a space for parents to have some respite. Um, and also you were watching kind of how you, you all interacted with these kids and that really powerful things happen when you connect relationally. And so I, I wonder if we can even lay some of that out and... You know, how, how did what you, you as the kind of container of Karen's, you know, essence, because you said earlier, Karen was basically doing therapy. And the thought in my mind was, well, Karen just was therapy. You know, she was just this healing person, you know, mm -hmm. just to be around her was healing. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I will have at this point in, when I put this conversation out there, I will have talked about some of this stuff in the intro piece provided a little mm -hmm. bit of background on that. But I'm just, just, I guess, I'm curious how, how what TBRI is evolved to address these kind of relational wounds that happened. And because I'm somebody who's seen it, I've, I've been in it. And a lot of people that I talk to and work with, they don't, they don't know. Uh, you know, they, I think a lot of times we people, we just operate how we operate. We go about the way we go about, you know, like people say stuff like, I'm not messed up. I'm fine. Look at me. Everything's all good. 
um, but they don't even realize how they're suffering. So maybe, maybe that takes us somewhere, but I'm, I'm interested in what you back in from Karen Purvis sitting front row in your classroom to TBRI, how does that happen? Um, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question. Here's mm -hmm. one way. So uh, at TCU, we've got, in the Institute, we've got a, a, a child developmental trauma program. And uh, Casey asked me to say, to, when the, our first graduating class, Dr. Call, asked me to share some wisdom with the students. And, um, and like, I had like 15 minutes. So what I was trying to do was, was channel Karen. I, was, I actually, literally, I can remember watching her sitting on the floor like at camp, yeah. working with you know, some of these you know, hard kids. And what I came up with was a mantra, and we now have it on T-shirts and stuff. So the mantra was, cause, was stay calm no matter what. Because when she was kid with kids, she never lost her cool. Mm -hmm. She would lose her cool with the adults. She lost her cool with me lots of times. <laughs> um, but when she was around a kid, she never lost her cool. And anybody who works about with kids who, well, anybody who's experienced trauma, once you lose, once you dysregulate, once you lose your cool, whatever you want to say, you've lost the battle. You may, could still win the war, but you've lost that particular battle. So that was so the first line of the mantra, stay calm no matter what. Uh, the second line of the mantra was, see the need behind the behavior. Yeah. And, and I think one of the most, I've come to believe one of the most powerful phrases in the English language is, what do you need? Tell me what you need. And I think that's what Karen was so extraordinary. I think if I had to pick one thing that was like the essence or the thing that defined her, it was she could see their needs. And, and so it wasn't the behavior. There's a, there's a quote she has that's something like, you know, even when they're coated in their own shit, inside there's still this precious human being and and she meant lit, both literally and figuratively sure. <laughs> so <laughs> um and so yeah so see, being able to see the need and so that's part of what tbr i mean so you know anyway then then the third line of the mantra is meet the need find a way and so that's kind of where TBRI, or at least part, the more obvious parts of TBRI come in, because it's a bunch of strategies like choices and compromises and you know, life value terms and so on. And, and so they give, those give people a toolbox that they can use. Um, so stay calm no matter what, see the need behind the behavior, meet the need, find a way. And that's what she did, that was, that was her. Because you know, when she, when when she created TBRI, when she did that first summer camp, I've I've checked Psych Info and gone back and done a lit search on trauma informed care and you know and so on. None of that terminology, you know, you you won't find if you search on trauma informed care, you won't find anything before maybe 2005. 
So she created out of her experience, out of uh, you know what she learned in my classes, what she she would think nothing of getting on the phone and calling Mary Main or T. Barry Brazelton and just say, look, I got this thing. I got to figure this out. Can you help me? Anyway, so she, she found a way to meet these kids' needs, at least most of the time. The, and then, go ahead. No, please. Well, then the last line is, um, don't quit. If not you, not, if not you then who? because she never quit on a kid. No. And the only time, uh, you know, as we got, you know, when we first started out and she had a lot more time and there wasn't much demand on her, I mean, she would go to a child's house every week. Um, but then later on, it got harder and harder, so she wasn't able to sort of herself to follow on those kids. And I think part of our journey was empowering others so they could do that um so yeah because tbr created it it had as a i'm a teacher you know i was one of those people that worked at the camp and so tbri created a system for to address something really important which is something i see in my practice where people say you know they say the typical thing there's no book for this you know, and I think it's interesting. I certainly resonate with that. But we've been, as human beings, we've been parenting for a long time, and mm. here we are in the age of uh, so much networked connection, and yet we really suffer on what to do. We struggle around what to do in the moment. How do I provide natural consequences? How do I whatever? And I notice in my own experience, but also those with whom I work, it's a lot of reactivity, rigidity and intensity. And um, th there's so many misperceptions about how parenting works. And, and that's just a, that's normal. That's every day, right? That's not parenting kids who come from trauma. Um, I just imagine that you must have been raised by some lovely people. My fantasy is lovely people to be able to um, create in you uh, this pursuit and drive to help those that have come from hard places but also are in hard places as they parent. And I, I, I want to shoot off there for a second because the um, reading your, we're going to talk about this in a, in a bit, but reading your book that this is in process, right? You've got this thing you're working on that um, I was really struck by how you're kind of overlaying a lot of Taoist thought with the developmental theory that you've been mm -hmm. operating mm -hmm. on for years. Did those two things... See, here's my belief about this, and I mentioned that in the book, is that... In the beginning of that book, I think the first chapter is called, I've looked at it a little bit, but it's been too long. That's all right. Um, it's called The Way Things Work. Yeah. And, and from a philosophical standpoint, I, uh, I guess I believe that there's an ontology, at least in development, you know, like I understand, you know, the postmodern thing. I understand that 
you know, so much of what we take as reality is, you know, our own construction. Mm -hmm. I get that. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember now who said it. But, you know, if you believe that, then why don't you, they said, why don't you step out in front of that bus? If that's your, that's your, if that's your construction, you know, but we don't do that. I mean, there's a reality and there's a physical reality that governs us, but there's also a biological reality in my well, I believe, I mean, I, I mean, it's not just a belief. I think it's, it's, it's truth. And, um, you know, we have a, you know, as humans, we have a long evolutionary history. We have, you know, cultural histories. Um, and these things matter. I mean, they, they condition us and they constrain us. And so one of the best examples of that in my mind is is I would say you know our work at the Institute it's grounded in what we know about the neuroscience of trauma it's grounded in what we know about development but probably more than anything else it's grounded in attachment theory and um, and I think there's a fair bit of nonsense about attachment theory so I'm not sure what to think of a dot like for example attachment parenting um, I think there's a lot of clinical work that sort of uses that as a, you know, kind of a way to achieve respectability when I don't think people really understand Define it. that. What do you mean attachment parenting? What are you talking about when you say that? Well, there's this, there's, uh, if, I mean, there are blogs about attachment parenting. Mm-hmm. And there are some kernels of truth in all that, but it's, I think a lot of it's nonsense myself but you know what you know um, what John Bowlby and Mary Main and Mary Ainsworth discovered about human nature as I think some of the most important things uh, some of the most important concepts and insights in all of science and um, I mean and I could go on and on about that but you know so like say for example I mean what basically what attachment theory tell, teaches us is that um, we're born hardwired to connect and it's actually the title of a committee report, like a blue ribbon committee on what you know what's behind the mental, the current mental health crisis for children. And it's basically, what they say is there is we don't have we've lost sight of of how to build the rich set of connections that kids need to be healthy, uh, and adults need to be healthy. Um, but so we're born. At, uh, you know, babies born into the world, their nervous, the, the sort of developmental processes of their nervous system exist because of this evolutionary history. And in that evolutionary history, when they were born, there was a caregiver who provided them sensitive, responsive, nurturing care. And so we, you know, we're, we're quite willing to say, that you know, an infant doesn't know that they're you know they're they're ignorant of, of a lot of things. But what we don't seem to be so willing to say is they need us to connect with them, 
and they need us um, on a, you know, and, and, and what we also know is that by the time a child's seven, eight, nine months, there's one or two people in their life who are the end all and be all of their life. And that's their mom and dad or whoever their you know, regular caregivers are. And, um, and that's just the way we're, we call it specific attachment. And so, you know, attachment figures are not, you know, I mean, they're, they're not a dime a dozen. I mean, there might be a, a mom, a dad, a grandma, whoever, whoever it is that's caring for the child. Anyway, so we're born, one of the technical terms in developmental psychology is um, environmentally expectant processes. So the way development occurs, I mean, a really kind of crude, simple example is, um, you know, like certain vitamins. If the body doesn't have those vitamins while it's developing, then, you know, we'll be, you know, we'll be warped or we'll be dead. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the, the caregiving, you know, the sort of parenting processes that we, you know, we've, you know, humans have done for ages are just as necessary for the well-being and development as that child as vitamins or air or whatever it might be. So, um, I had a, a thought just a second ago about you saying air, you know, that's not speaking hyperbolically, you know, that it is a it is a fundamental necessity that in in our development to have these kinds of connections yeah and and we tend to write this stuff off the kind of relational dynamics that um that we just take as a given but you know, the ways in which we're related to and related with in our early experience will determine uh, you know not the you know the absolute trajectory but certainly the the ballpark you know at least the direction you're pointing and unless and i think to to your point here unless and i, I always can't stand this term but it, it's one that works maybe you can fix it unless intervened upon mm. you know mm -hmm. um in a healthy relational way you know, the, the thing about your book that I really like, and, and just to note, you've got another book too, you know, The Connected Child, that mm -hmm. is kind of one of the go-to books in the world of um, certainly adoption, but childhood mm -hmm. trauma. Um, the people that are healing these wounds have to have these really healthy relationships with themselves and those around mm -hmm. them in order to kind of main, not get triggered, not get reactive, because those when we get reactive, it, we're, we're triggered by something, you know, and mm -hmm. as a psychodynamically speaking, we're regressing back to a time, you know, earlier. And, um, but I think the main, the, the, the kind of main thread we're getting into that I was, I'm really excited to hear you talk about is attachment in general and what it is, because a lot of people just don't, don't know. And part of this pursuit that I'm doing is about definition of terms. And to define something like attachment or healthy caregivers, or uh, I don't know, trauma, um, what development is and what it looks like, because we're bringing in not only the relational structure, but the biological structure 
The other thought I had when you were talking is that when I took Karen's class, because I took her year-long class, you came and spoke mm-hmm. a number of times. Mm-hmm. It, I think it was the most rigorous class I've ever taken in my life. Hmm. I, I, it, because it was so much neuroscience, and here we were training to be these healthy people working with kids, and we were learning about what serotonin and norepinephrine were doing in the brain, mm-hmm. and you know the consequences of relational wounds how that has a biological impact so I, I if we kind of broaden our, our 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 field of vision a little bit a healthy development is like air it creates a healthy consciousness uh, early experience that's not healthy of course sends us off in another direction so I, I I would love it if you'd riff a little more on and I know we're getting late so I, mm-hmm. I'm sensitive to that. Um, if you'd riff more on attachment. Well, first of all, about attachment. So one of the things we're doing at the at the institute, I don't know if you're familiar with or you're uh, what are called RSA animates. Mm-mm. It's RSA is the Royal Society for the Arts, and um, what they've this. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure how active they are doing this now. They might still be. But it's kind of like, it's kind of like TED Talks. Mm-hmm. And so they've decided to fund these, these things they call animates. And so they'll get people who are experts in their field and they will talk. And then there's this company, um, I think they're called the Cognitive Arts, but I'm not quite sure about that. But they will, they will create... So as you know, if I was talking about, like, say, um, you know, like in the strain situation, a separation between an attachment figure and an infant, they would draw that. And so as you heard my voice, you would be seeing an artist render whatever it right. was I was talking about. And, and, and I think the RSA animates are, I mean, they're, they're, I've seen these. they're, yes. they're supercharged. Yeah. Well, we're creating our own. And the first one, we have a gal that, that's one of our, she's helped us produce videos. Her name's Cynthia Hall. And the first one she took on as a project was, she, it was on TBRI, but the entire thing was done in Karen's voice using recorded, you know, thing, you know all the recordings we have of her over the years. And they drew out, and so, and it's magnificent. And it's free, it's available free on YouTube. And then she just finished one using my voice on attachment. And, um, and it's now, you can, you can go to our website and you can get those. Um, and they're powerful. I think they're really mm-hmm. good. And people, use, we use them a lot and others use them a lot in their trainings. Um, I think, that, I mean, I could go, I, we could talk all night. We could talk to the wee hours of the morning on attachment, but the... Here's an interesting thing of about attachment. So the, the father, the godfather of attachment theory was John Bowlby, who was a psychoanalyst and um, in Europe, in Britain. He, uh, he actually started his work before World War II. Um, and his first paper, uh, at least, I think the first paper, the title was 40 Thieves, and then there's some subtitle or something like that. 
but it had the phrase 40 thieves in it. And the 40 thieves, I guess, it, I think it was a takeoff on the 40 nights or, or so somebody in the, you know, 40 thieves or, you know, some, Alibaba. Yeah, right, Alibaba. Yeah. The, um, they were street kids in London. And he started, uh, and in those days, psychoanalysis and social work had a lot of interconnection. Maybe they still do, but it, my sense is they aren't as interconnected as they used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and so he, you know, he was working with people who were, you know, clinical social workers. Anyway, and he looked into, I mean, there I guess kind of two discoveries he made when studying the lies of these kids. One discovery was that their problem behavior, quote unquote problem behavior, was rooted in their trauma, you know, their relationship histories. And it wasn't that they were, as we would, you know, it wasn't that they were bad kids or they were willfully, you know, it was just, you know, it was their history, you know, their, their you know, speaking through their behavior. The other thing he, did, he figured out was what we knew in the healing arts and the healing sciences was of no use to these kids. We had nothing to offer them. And I think it's one of the most profound realizations you know, that I know of. And, and, it's, and also intellectually honest realizations mm -hmm. because there were lots of folks at that time and after that time who pretend that they have, they can help kids like that. And I think, um, I think it's almost true, I don't think it's completely true, but I think it's almost true that Karen was one of the first people, yeah, I gotta be careful with this. Well, what I was gonna say was, it, I think it's almost true that Karen is one of the first people to really be able to help kids like the kids from hard places in a, in a big way. Mm. And um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I don't, you know, there's other people who've been really good at it, but um, in terms of the, imp, the lasting impact, I'm not, you know, who knows. But so um, that's, you know, that's what set him on the course of attachment theory of creating a theory was you know the you know the started with kind of with the freudian realization that or the psychoanalytic realization that you know we are our history you know and we what we do is our history speaking through our actions and so on and so much of that wasn't conscious and etc cetera, etc cetera. and um beginning to and, you know, and then his genius, a part of his genius, was looking in different disciplines. So he looked in uh, ethology. So he looked at the work that Conrad Lorenz was doing in uh, Nico Tinbergen. He, you know, he looked in his own discipline with people like Winnicott. And he, uh, and he also looked in... Um, you know, an animal behavior, and he, you know, him and Harry Harlow had a, you know, a correspondence, and and he came over. Uh, I think he came over to the U.S. once to meet Harry Harlow and see his lab. But he sort of pulled, and he was also really attuned to the new field of cybernetics. So all, he took all of this work and created one of the first interdisciplinary, you know, syntheses about 
how our early experiences, you know, impact our behavior. But he took it another step, which was the, you know, he created the foundation for the realization, like we were talking about earlier, that that there's, you know, in order for a, a child to develop normally, there are certain normative things that has to happen and they transcend culture. They're part of our biological heritage. They're not part of our cultural heritage. And it's certainly the case that, and then what I believe is that what we do culturally are amplifiers for those biological processes. And so they support it, they amplify it, they strengthen it. And it's only when we lose, and this is, <clears throat> Again, I could go on all night, but here's something I've come to realize recently in our work, okay, is, so this is, this is the pattern that I've seen, because we have the good fortune of doing trauma-informed, what I believe to be truly trauma-informed work, but trauma-informed work all around the world. And here's the message that, the message that I've heard over and over again was, in communities, traditional communities, whether it's Rwanda or New Zealand or Australia or you know, the, the Native Americans of the American West, is that when they are, in a sense, when, when they are confronted, it's not the right word, when they, when they engage TBRI or what we do, it's like, oh, it's not a, le a learning experience primarily, it's an awakening. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, I mean, what I've been told, I remember uh, uh, one of my experiences on, in terms of this was we were in, a couple of us were in New Zealand and we were asked to speak at a conference. They put on this conference once a year to support foster parents. So they wine them and dine them and then they have trainings and you know, and it's really pretty cool. And, um, and so uh, what I lots of times do when I don't have a lot of time to present is I'll just show videotape of Karen and I'll say, this is what TBRI is, you just watch. So, and just, you know, Karen's doing her thing with different kids at different ages and so on. And the, the MC of the conference was a Maori woman. So this tall, beautiful, you know, elegant woman. And um, so I gave my first presentation, which was more me talking and, and less the, the video. And, and she said, what she likes about this is that it resonates with the, the, the Maori beliefs about how they raise kids because it's whole child and it's, it's based on mutual respect. Then I did another session that was more of a workshop kind of session and that's the one where I just showed, I really just showed video. She was in tears by the end of it. And, um, and she came up to me and she said, you must really miss her. But, and she also said, um, this is who we are. 
this is who, you know, and we've forgotten how to be who we are. And the same thing happened when a, a woman named Elizabeth Steiffe took TBRI to Rwanda. Once they figured out how to get the message across, it was like they had known it for generations. The problem was, the challenge was how to communicate it because our DVDs, which are white kids with white parents, you know, and in white homes, you know, middle-class homes, don't really speak to the Rwandans. So they, it's really interesting because what they, once they kind of figured out what they needed to do, instead of using the videos, they did role play. And so they used drama basically. And, but the Rwandans, they, it's, it's like they, you awaken their DNA. They're, they're sort of, and the same thing's happening with Native Americans. And I, they've been telling me exactly the same things. And we have some folks working in Australia and they say, I mean, so there's, you know, I think, I think what it speaks to is this idea I was talking about. You've got this biological heritage, which is attachment theory, but then you have cultural practices and beliefs and artifacts which take that and complement it. And unfortunately, what I think has happened in our culture is we've become industrialized and so on, and our culture no longer complements and supports and amplifies the when when you see that it's the exception rather than the rule and it's it's a yeah yeah it doesn't complement and connect with our nature mm-hmm. that that's literally what I wrote down that hit me when you said that this feedback about we've forgotten yeah so it even to address the point from earlier is you know parents say gosh there's no book for this you know but it's in our dna yeah and so and we we you know are you done yeah okay so (laughs) one of the things karen and i used to talk about was that um when we trained there were three there were three categories of people and you know I mean, I don't know. I used to say it's roughly a third, a third, a third. I have no idea if that's really true, but it kind of felt like that. But there's one third of people, one third of the folks you train, and this is like the Rwandans and the Maoris and the you know the Navajo and the Apache. Is it's like you're giving words to what they already know. Mm-hmm. You're giving a narrative to. You're articulating to what was unarticulated. And, and, you know, and it's, it's really a cool thing to see because so very often those people will say, oh, it's so nice to know that I'm on the right track or it's so nice to know I'm doing the right thing because our culture doesn't support it. You know, they're following their biology, but, you know, the culture is not supporting that. But our, our culture is so screwed up when it comes to this stuff. Um, so that's one category of people. There's another category of people who are kind of open-minded but kind of clueless. And they want to do the right thing, but they, um, you know, you got to kind of teach them. So it's like learning to, you know, build a house or something. So you kind of got to go through it and they're open to it, but you got to walk them. So it's not an awakening. It's, it's an apprenticeship, if you will, or something like that. But then there's a third category of people 
and uh, I used to think who are really resistant. And before we did this work, you know, we started doing this work, and I learned from Karen and learned from you know some other stuff. I used to think that these were just you know people who were willfully opposed. What I now realize is they're afraid. Yeah. And uh, and they just can't go there right now. They just this is threatening. This uh, which you know reminds me of. Uh, I, you know, a, a complimentary program to TBRI is Circle of Security, mm-hmm. and it's really powerful. And, um, and there's some therapists who, uh, who are, part, are partners with us who combine them, Circle of Security with TBRI, which I think is a really potent combination. The, but what Ken Hoffman was the trainer for Karen and me, we trained in Lubbock, Texas. What a place to learn circle, circle of security. <laughs> okay. But I guess I should be careful what I say. Um, but the, he had this saying that's always stuck with me. He said, everybody wants to be a good parent. Every adult wants to be good at parenting. There are no exceptions. And when he first said it, I thought, okay, well, that's, that's cool. But I, I believe it because I mean, uh, we've worked, yeah, I mean, I think there's probably some folks who are truly psychopaths mm-hmm. or sociopaths who maybe could care less about being a good parent. But, you know, 99% of us want to be a good parent, no matter whether how drugged up they are or, you know, what, you know whatever they've done. And, again, I think that speaks to our biological heritage. Mm-hmm. It's just in us. It's our DNA. It's our shared DNA. To connect. To connect. Yeah, to belong. <clears throat> I have something else for you. Yeah. Speaking of DNA. I worked this out. Did you know Don Dancero? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So Don and, I, we, we, so Don and Pat Flynn and I, who's the, who's the director of the IBR, the Institute for Behavior Research, we have lunch about once a month. But Don and I, we, we, we have breakfast about once a month, but we're starting on a, on a manuscript project. And we're actually going to write about this idea of awakening. We're going to write a paper for American psychologists about that. We're also going to write a paper on the TBRI story. Mm-hmm. They're really address, I mean, it's sort of the way we're going to frame that is to what is an evidence-based practice, which I think is, you know, TBRI sort of defies the TBRI phenomenon defies all the usual categories of what what is an evidence-based practice um did you want me to talk about that yeah what do you what do you mean by that well and i haven't figured this out yet but here's the deal so our core training is what we call tbri practitioner training and we now train 150 people at a time and it's a really good training yeah. I mean, you know, people, it's without... Is this the week-long thing? Yeah, almost without, that. almost without exception, people say this is the best training they've ever had. Yeah, it's I good. Mean, it's, yeah. um, and so that means, so now, so for those 150 spots, we may have 600 applicants, mm-hmm. which is success by any measure. I mean... You know, if we were in the business world, we would be saying, you know, we, you know there's demand for our product. Mm-hmm. What more can we want? 
And, okay, so on the one hand, then, so that's sort of one metric, if you will. Another metric is, I mean, literally, at least once a week, we get a call from somebody that says, we want you to train our organization. We want you to train our court. We want you to train our, our community. Our, you want, we want you to train our country in TBRI. And it's, you know, poor Darren Jones, who's our outreach director. He's, you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's, you know, he, he it's, it, it's, you know, he, he's overwhelmed. Yeah. And just this past week, we had a con, we had, I was just, and these are just the conversations I was in on, but one of them, for example, was with the CEO of Spalding Children's Home, which is one of the, you know, biggest names in child welfare in, in the country. Well, they, they've already started implementing TBRI and they want more spots in our training. And that's just one conversation. We have that kind of conversation routinely in the Institute now. Again, that's, that's, that sounds like success. Now, we have only done two comparison studies like random, with randomized controls. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's actually a three-group study. And um, uh, there was a delayed treatment control group. One treatment got face-to-face. -face, these are adoptive parents. One group got face-to-face -face training in TBRI, and the other one used, we have an online training module now we call it TBRI 101 mm -hmm. and so and you know what we ended up with was statistically significant results so that you know both the training groups better did better than the control group and the the, the, the some of our researchers wrote them up it's two different papers so we got these two papers and so we went to the California Clearinghouse of evidence-based practices and those are what they use to say, okay, you're at, you're a promising intervention, a promising practice. Well, now I'm a statistician. I look at those and I say, okay, that's good. I mean, it was it was it was it's cool, but the effect sizes are tiny, and they can't compare to what we usually see. You know, in our in our work. So like, for example, we have two papers that were published on the camp that you participated in. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think one was based on that very year. Did we collect cortisol the year? Oh, yeah. 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 So the, the, in, in, the, in the camps, we collected cortisol, which is, you know, the, the studies that had the randomized control group, it was parent, um, they were surveys, they were questionnaires that the uh -huh. parents filled out. So, you know, we have, there's no blindness at all in it. I mean, and um, the, so in, in those camps, we collected cortisol data, you know, through, had the kids spit. And, you know, what we found at least three times, maybe four times, four separate summers, was that before camp, the kids' cortisol was about twice as high as what's considered normative. And then by the second week of camp, it was down to a normal level. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a metric that you can't fake. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge effect. 
but that doesn't count towards evidence-based practice according to the current rules because you got to have a comparison group otherwise it's I mean you can have those studies but what determines it and so I mean I can go on and on about this so here's the thing it's what it is basically it's a rigged game because what happens is so like for TBRI um, now we do have a we do have a clinical trial going with therapists so one of our partners has written a manual and we're training therapists we're gonna have a compare you know, delayed you know training group and so mm -hmm. on so we are I mean we're gonna we're playing the game as best we can but the game is stupid okay and and I understand why it is because you know in the, during the hist in the history of interventions there's been a lot of shaman. I mean, no, that's actually not. I don't want to say that. There's been a lot of fakes. A lot, you know, a lot of you know people who were selling you. You know, what do you call those things? Those, the old time guys who would sell you the elixirs. Snake oil. Yeah, snake yeah. oils. There'd been a lot of snake oil people. Uh -huh. And so I understand. It's you know, it's a way to try to winnow out the fakes. You know, and but what the, the game is rigged because of this. If uh, I hope I can say this, I, I'm, t I'm trying to figure out how. To, so, so if you think of the the typical clinical trial, and sort of one of the best examples is um, cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you write a manual, and the principles are you know I mean for a, a therapist are pretty easy to implement. Um, you can do it the same with you know any any you know pretty much any client, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so my, my point is, is it's easy, it's relatively easy to implement the, des the design because you've got, you know, you've got a group, you know, group of therapists that are doing, at least on paper, X, you got another one that are doing Y and another one maybe you're doing nothing. Well, there's two big problems with that. One problem is, is that, so the, the patients, the therapists, and the context are all treated like they're interchangeable parts. It's, the, it's exactly the way we deliver drugs to, you know, medications. Mm -hmm. You know, if I, you know, if I get a, my, you know, lansoprozole from this pharmacy, it's the same one as the one I'm going to get from this pharmacy, okay? And... And so it's, you know, we, it's easy to, to evaluate, at least on the surface. But then when you dig a little deeper, it's the factory model. I mean, it kind of goes back to right. the production model, basically. Well, the problem is, for example, just one example is, and I hope maybe this is just a, a rabbit trail, but um, I talked back when we, early when the, 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 the National Child Trauma Network started, and which was the, the whole goal of it was to sort of officially sanction what really counted as trauma and what really counted as trauma-informed you know, practice. And it didn't work out at all, I don't think. Um, but we, we toyed with the idea of trying to become part of that. And I had a conversation with one of the sort of the ladies that was implementing, I don't remember her name now, and I said, I said, you know, I said this whole, because what they were advocating was trauma-focused CBT. And I said, you know, my experience, and I was thinking of what Karen does, you know, the relationship is key. So how, how can you ignore attachment, for example? And she said, we don't. We just don't talk about it. 
And so... And how can the, you standardize relationship? Yeah, and how can yeah. you standardize relationship? So there's that whole, you know, that whole, uh, the, the business about the, you know, the percentage of the effect, you know, and, you know, most of it's in the relationship. And then, you know, and then there's the fact that, what is it, that, you know, I think only 10% of therapists use evidence-based practices. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, I, that was, that was I, I guess, maybe off topic, but it's, it's a rigged game. But what I haven't figured out yet is, and this is what I'm gonna work with Don on, is how do we tell this story so that others will listen? Because, you know, if we weren't in the behavioral sciences, if we didn't have this legacy of uh, that this is how you evaluate these interventions, if we were like, say, in the business world or, you know, the medical world, it, you know, we would be considered roaring successes. Yeah. And... And actually, I don't worry about it too much because, you know, yeah, I mean, the only, in my view, the main reason that it's important for us to do work, you know, do studies that will advance our evidence-based practice status is we have partners who need for us to do that because they maybe work for a state where the state, you know, there's, the state says you have to, you know, you can only use a intervention if it's, you know, listed on this directory. Um, but otherwise, the New Zealanders don't care, the Maori don't care, the Navajo don't care. I'm watching our, uh, I'm watching our time and I've kept you. Yeah. Um, and I still, I, of course, like there's, you know, here I prepared for like tons of questions about Taoism and your... your well, let me writing. tell you one more thing, because there's a thought that I think is important that was mm -hmm. left unspoken. Is that okay? Please. So you asked me earlier, and I hadn't really thought about, well, I had thought about it. So remember I said, I was talking about Spinoza, mm -hmm. and you could also be talking about Laoza, and you can be talking about Wangza. Mm -hmm. It's all about process. Process, process, process. And in fact, well, I won't go there. That's, that's a, but what, so, so what, the way that sort of manifests itself in our work is I've already told you one, whereas, you know, what I, when you know what I try to get across is if you want to know what TBRI is watch what this woman does Karen Purvis or watch now we have so many people who do it well right watch you know you know watch Darren Jones do it you know or watch Amanda Pur you know Amanda Purvis do it or whoever because it's the embodiment of it that matters and so that was sort of my first realization was, and again, going back to Spinoza, it's not, in, it's not a thing, it's a doing, okay? And so, and now what I've come to realize is even the training is a kind of a thing. It's learning about names and so on. And now we build a lot of experiential components into it, which is part of what makes it so good. Mm -hmm. But the real action is in implementation. How are you going to do this? So it's the doing that matters. You know, what Spinoza, what Spinoza said was, he spent, he spent a lot of time talking about the term being. 
and and you and I talked a little bit about this at dinner. You know, in the you know in the Greek and Latin uh, lexicon, I guess being is a thing. It's God. Yeah, it's uh, it's all the stuff. It's all the being. So, but for Spinoza, being was being. It was a process. It was living. It was doing. It was processing. It was taking the next step. It was taking the journey. Yeah. And and that's what. So what I now have come and and so what what I've come to believe is the training is the first step on the journey. Well, the first step is realizing you need the training. The second step is doing the training. But the third most important step is how are we going to do TBRI with in our professional context? And that's where um, we put, a, I don't know if we put most of our effort into that, but it, we put more and more of our effort as an institute into helping people implement. And Darren is a genius at that. Just like Karen was a genius in terms of like sitting, sitting with, a, you know, with a child or an adolescent, Darren is a genius at taking, you know, holding your hand while you try to take this journey and help you see next steps. And he's a guide. He's like, yeah. I think what, what anyway, I like, so that, yeah, anyway, what so. I like about your, your book that we won't be able to get into much because I want to close out on a couple of things. Um, what I think resonates with me so much about your book and how much I loved seeing this kind of Eastern philosophy and how how much it makes sense, how that maps onto what you've been doing through TBRI, for example, is um, that we talked earlier about nature and harmony. We didn't really get into that, but how essentially that on a really deep and basic level, you're helping people get into harmony with their nature, with the nature of nature. You know, that, that when those children who've been wounded through the development have been overwhelmed by the environment, they, of course, get out, uh, out of their kind of natural development. Right? Because the, mm -hmm. the, the natural development, as we stated earlier, fundamental like you know, relationship being fundamental like air is. So that means that natural human development is predicated upon harmonious relationships that are meeting our needs. I cry, my caregiver comes. I need to eat, I, I get food, you know. And so that's, that's nature. And nature is outside of my skin, right? Consciousness in that moment is kind of beyond my boundaries because it's dependent upon the healthy interaction with those in my environment that I then create intrapsychically a healthy understanding of what the world is and then I go about living my life in that way and that has a deep ripple effect on others if I'm in harmony with that then I bring harmony into the world if I'm in disharmony in that then I'm more likely to bring disharmony into the world so there's something I think that's really striking about as I'm looking on my computer I'm seeing these kind of ancient Chinese images and ideograms and 
and and it's blowing my mind because I've been doing the TBR I think for a long time, and there's this radical philosophical undertone that you're bringing into that you've brought your whole life it seems, but you're bringing it into how to work, <laughs> almost uh, uh, borrowing from asceticism, you know, how to do the work and working with children so that we're in harmony with nature. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it's kind of blowing my mind that that's um, that's where we are, and um, it, it it just resonates as somebody who who does the work with children, um, and and just how important it is for people to kind of biologically, spiritually, uh, relationally be in line with those kinds of harmonious endeavors. So with that in mind, I, I want to get out of your hair, you know. Um, but we're, you're, you're here. You're here in Houston. Where you and I are actually sitting in person. We'd be doing this over, you know, Zoom or something. Mm-hmm. We're sitting in person because you came down to Houston to work on sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm, I'm getting into uh, in a supportive role in Houston. And I, I wonder if you would. I, j- I, I just, I guess on some level, I feel compelled to, like, bring to awareness what's happening with sex trafficking. Could you spend a couple of minutes talking about that and we can kind of begin to close things off? Um, Sure. I think first of all, I'd like, I I need to say that um, we, as is so often, as is becoming increasingly off, off the case, we are working with, like for example, some of one, some of our best work I think, or has been with trauma, helping create trauma informed courts. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of expertise there that we don't have. But what what happens is, is we you know kind of inject TBRI into that, you know, and we help people see how they can do their work with their constraints and their principles and so on in with you know in, in you know but in implementing it in a, in a trauma-informed or tbri way and so the same thing's true here so tomorrow i'm going to spend the day with a gal named ali madison who has uh, been she had she's been the clinical director in a in a in a residential program for trafficked teen girls so she knows in a sense, the face of trafficking much, much better than I do, you know, and, and I learned from her and our other partners about, you know, what, I mean, just take one example. Um, what's real clear to me talking to them is that the perpetrators understand attachment. They understand it in a warped way, but they understand the need. Right. They understand the relational needs of these girls. And one way to look at, one lens to look at the whole trafficking thing is, and I don't think this is always true, but I think it's often true, is the, the trafficker understands the relational needs of, the, of, a, of a young person better than perhaps the people in their family do. And the, their predators you know, just like uh, a lion will know the habits and needs of an impala so they can hunt effectively, 
these predators in the trafficking world understand the needs and the uh, habits and the patterns. I mean, they know which girls are vulnerable. They can pick them out. And um, so, but, you know, I'm learning from them about that side of it. But what they're learning from us is, you know, it kind of goes back to that, you know, stay calm, see the need, you know, and they're learning how to, in a sense, put what they've learned or they're learning, you know, and, and, and bind it to, uh, you know, TBRI. So, um, the, the, the work we do at a community level is based upon a simple premise, and that is that um, if you have a child or an adolescent who's in a hard place, they've, whether they've been, you know, abused or neglected or trafficked or whatever it might be, they're, I mean, they, they, um, they're vulnerable, they're dysregulated, they're fragile in so many ways, tough in other ways, mm -hmm. but fragile in ways. Um, and what they need is consistency. So we say, what we're trying to do is make it so that every person, every adult who touches the life of this child in a significant way is on the same page. We think of TBRI as a culture, as a trauma-informed culture. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna share that culture among all these people. So their school teacher, their foster parent, or their biological parent, their therapist, their caseworker, you know, if they're in a shelter, you know, the staff in the shelter, wherever it is, the judge, the their attorney, everybody who has a significant role gets it. You know, in our case, they know TBRI. And I mean, sort of the one way I say, so one of our TBRI strategies is giving kids choices, which by the way is existential. Right. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> I mean, we think of it as a pragmatic Right. Strategy, but what's more ex existential than giving people choices? And um, what in, in my perfect world, the, you know, Janie, her teacher would give her choices and know how to do it right. Her mm -hmm. therapist would, her caseworker would, the judge would in the court, you know, all the way down the line. How do you give right choice? Ooh, tough one. Well, the first, it, so that's, so that's a, there's, there's a lot to be said about giving the choices, but the first and most, maybe the first and most, well, I'd say there's two things that are probably paramount. First of all, which I think, you know, you've probably heard this before, is never give a choice you can't live with. But I think what's even more deeper or maybe more profound is give your choices based upon your understanding of this child's needs. And I'd, I'd add a third one. Realize you're going to screw it up. And so give yourself a redo. You know, so uh, I've seen Karen. She'll give kids choices and then she'll say, you know what? Or the kid will kind of look at her and just say, you know what? Those were pretty dumb choices. Let's try that again. <laughs> so I'll, let, me, let me give you another set of choices. Or she would say, if she's stymied, you know, or where, you know, as an adult, you're stymied because sometimes it's hard to come up with good choices. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you come up with the choices. Let the kid do it. But then there's one thing you also you want to avoid. So you don't want to give choices that you can't live with. But it's not a choice to say, um, you do what I say. You have a choice between doing what I say or getting spanked. Yeah. That's not a choice. That's, you know, punishment. So disguised is a choice. Well, that's what I was yeah. getting to is yeah. people really struggle around. Oh, choice. it's hard, especially, you know, the heat of the moment. Yeah. You know, when a kid's pushing your buttons and they're challenging you and you're tired and you've been, you know, and uh, yeah, it's hard, which is, you know, one of the TBRI principles is practice that stuff during the good times so that when the bad times come and they will, then you've, you know, you've got some habit. Well, you've borrowed from when you do your work in Taoism, you've, you've borrowed from Strat strategy and war and combat. Yeah, and I love what you said in the first part of your book, where you're looking at look, you know, let's kind of move the enemy dimension out of it and bring the opponent. But the opponent isn't the kid. The opponent is the, you know, struggle and discernment. Yeah. Uh, str or the problem is you know self regulation or yeah. lack thereof. The yeah. problem is, um, you know, misperception of you know motivation. That's the opponent. You know? Right. And that's what we're looking to to defeat in quotations. Yeah, yeah. And and that changes the parenting dynamic completely when we say, look, you're, you know, as my child, you're not the problem. The problem is how we're making decisions. Yeah. The problem is, you know, you are becoming rigid, rigid and I am too, you know. Um, you know, the origin of this book, because I had read The Art of War and I'd kind of, I mean, I had been kind of attracted to the Taoist mm -hmm. text, but never in a really serious way. It was sort of dabbling. But then one day I realized that the art of war, I mean, there's parts of it that are specific. I mean, but really in terms of its most general and most powerful principles, that's what Karen did. Yeah. And wow. so, and that was when I took this, started taking this enterprise seriously. Mm-hmm. Well, the last um, I want to ask, we didn't really get into this, but and you, again, be the breaks here. Did you get involved at the border at all, Texas border? No. Um, I was on vacation. Uh-huh. And um, I, uh, I remember, I think I got a text or... I, I, I kept communicating with the staff with using Slack. But anyway, and it came up and... Um, and I, like I said earlier, I had a heart attack in, you know, around Christmas. And I think one of the reasons when I had a heart attack was because I never put the work down. Mm -hmm. So I had, you know, purpose to put the work down when, um, you know, I went on this vacation. Plus I was, I mean, I wasn't always in contact because we were on a cruiser boat. So... Uh, so no, I didn't. Um, I didn't really. I didn't really engage with that issue until I got back. Mm -hmm. and by then, it was you know kind of everything that needed to be said had been said. But I think Casey wrote a. Uh, I think I think somebody. I don't know whether it was a TCU communications department or somebody asked for a statement, and Casey wrote a statement. And she did a good job. Mm -hmm. So, she was the acting director when I was gone. 
I think it's, you know, I mean, it was a horrendous act, but like I alluded to earlier, what's even more horrendous is what it applies about the people who were making those decisions. Yeah. I mean, their, their, their poverty of spirit and their poverty of understanding is almost beyond, uh, you know, my comprehension. Yeah. It's it, in doing what we do, uh, working on a, you're on such a macro level, but even on a micro level, I just can't imagine. I just, I immediately see the devastating consequences that are so far beyond that limited time and space of an act like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I don't know, I just, I wish people would, you know, cultivate our higher self to be able to not have to respond out of fear or whatever in the hell they're doing, but, you know, be human and, uh, and relational. Um, okay. Let's the, uh, on that note, you know, here we, you know, you and I are pretty familiar talking about trauma and being in those spaces, you know, and, um, a lot of people aren't, I wonder if you'd finish up with, a story of redemption, something that throughout the years has stuck out as a an experience that you've seen with a child or a family that is redemptive. You know, when you see hmm. the the relational strategies that you're so interwoven with when they work. Well, one of the most powerful ones. So I mentioned, I think I mentioned a couple of times, we're starting to do work to help judges create trauma-informed courts. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, we get a lot of satisfaction out of that. And there's been some, one of the courts uh, is the judges is Judge Carol Clark, who's in Smith County, Texas. And she's really taken it to, she was really close with Karen and She's taken it to a, a pretty high level and created a system to uh, help families uh, who are court involved to get, you know, basically to heal and, you know, get reunited as families. And, um, and so we asked our, one of our video people, producers, to, well, so we had, so one of the ideas that I've had is that we need that we have a documentary series because we've got we've got partners like we that are implementing TBRI with excellence in a res, you know like an RTC environment mm-hmm. and in a school environment and in a court and um, in in a juvenile detention facility you know et cetera et cetera et cetera and. Um, so what I was thinking, the idea was originally was let's do a documentary series, and it's kind of in my original idea was it let's it, it's a, it can be a how-to, and maybe we do a manual, but what Olive always you know she's always seeking she always she has a nose for the compelling story, so what she's done with this doc and the first one was on Judge Clark's court so she's finished almost finished with it, and we saw a screening of it 
last week, I think. And first of all, when she was telling me about it over the phone, it, 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 I said, thought to my, well, I said to her, I said, you know, Olive, it sounds to me from what you're saying that this is the most powerful work you've ever done. And she started crying and she said, David, yes, it is. Hmm. And she's done some pretty powerful stuff. And so I saw it. Now, you know, I was in tears a fair bit of the time. But one of the, what, the way she made it so compelling was she found two families that would let her tell their stories and how they were impacted on this court. And they're both compelling. The one that speaks to me, most, I think, most strongly was a Hispanic cult couple who uh, had both been in prison a couple of times, had lost their kids a couple of times. The, most re the last time they had lost their kids, she was giving birth to their third child. She gave birth on the floor of their house. Her husband called 911 and split because he didn't want they because he was drugged up and he didn't want to be busted. She was she was drunk. And so when CPS got there or the police or whoever got there, they called CPS and the kids were taken away. And her kids watched her give birth on the floor in their kitchen all by herself and then watched CPS come and take the kids away. And, you know, and then Olive has scenes where they go through their, you know, they drive through the neighborhoods where they grow up and they describe their childhoods. And, uh, you know, which, I mean, for the, for the woman, she got started on meth, you know, with her mom when she was 14. And they did meth together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, her husband is this big, burly, he was in gangs, uh, he's all tatted up, and he talks about basically how he was a punk. He beat his wife, he just, he talked, you know, he was drunk, he was using drugs, he was in gangs, he was doing all that stuff. He'd been to prisons a couple times. And he said, and he said, I, and, and then he, this is the line I'll never forget, he says, I was a punk then, or I'm not sure that's the term he used, but that was the idea. And he said, but now I'm a man. I'm a real man because I'm a father and I'm a husband. And they've cleaned it. They've got their kids back. They now have five kids. They're, they've got jobs. They're, they're, they're expanding their house. They're building it themselves. I mean, you know, I'm getting teared up just thinking about it. That's a story of redemption. And it's also, you know, and you know, you're tempted to say it's the power of TBRI. And it does reflect the power of TBRI, but it reflects the power of that judge and the attorneys and the caseworkers and the therapists and the family. And which is, I think, another reason why I'm getting more and more reluctant just to say it's the training that's important. It's what people do with the training that's important, which speaks to, you know, their, you know, their own strengths and um, resilience and, you know, whatever you want to, I don't know what, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's the, imp you know, the implementation, you know, you know, implementation is a narrative. 
that's created by people. And uh, that's where the stories are, the stories that matter. The, what Don, I was talking to Don the other day, and he get, you know, I was telling him I was trying to come up with a metaphor, and he corrected my metaphor. The way he said, I said to him, you know, TBRI is like DNA. You know, DNA until it comes in contact with the biological machinery is inert. And then what he added, he said, the institute is like the RNA. And that court was like all that biological machinery that takes the RNA and creates all of its work, all of its good works. And so that's where the action is, is what DNA is like, a, you know, an information source. Um, and then we help, you know, and one of the, the things I like about the metaphor is, is that it's not a matter of, you know, the gene, you know, DNA deciding, okay, let's send some RNA over. The biological machinery asks for the, D, you know, the RNA. So it's, it's the answer to a request. So it's always conditional on the needs of whatever it is you're trying to help. Well, I think the culture is a, kind of the, the idea of what we should be living out. Mm -hmm. You know, that's... And they're different. Right? There are different systems yeah. that exist. And, and actually, I hadn't thought about this before, but, you know, if you think about cultures, I mean, so here's just take three examples. So one of the things that happens in a trauma-informed court is the folks in there are not adversary. You know, the, our system is built on an adversarial relationship yeah. between the prosecution and the defense. That all goes out the window. Everybody in there is trying to help this family succeed. And so that is, it's like that's a, a case study in what our culture could be like. Whereas the typical court is a case study in what so many aspects of our culture is like. And then if you take it a step further and you look at what, um, like, you know, what some indigenous cultures do or are starting to, to rediscover is the whole idea of restorative justice. And where, I mean, the story, the, the first time I heard about this, and then um, in the, what's, what, you know, one way the Rwandans are dealing with the genocide is, is that, is through traditional restorative justice mechanisms. And so the, you know, the, the description I heard of it, or read of it, was everybody in the village gets in like a big circle. You know, it might just be a hundred people or something. And they have a kind of a ritual that they, that they do this, that structures this. And this kind of goes back to Jungian archetypes and stuff. But the, <laughs> they have a ritual, and part of the ritual is the victims, uh, you know, describing the crimes that were committed against their families. And then, I'm not quite, I don't remember exactly what it is that the perpetrators, you know, do, but where it ends is, how are you going to, how are we going to not just co be compensated, but how are we going to restore our community? And they're doing it in the context of genocide. So, I mean, at the time I read it, they, they were saying that's not guaranteed that they were going to be successful. Mm -hmm. But they were trying to apply those old, anyway. Mm 
better call it a night. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Thanks for the time, David. Yeah, my pleasure. It was fun. I Great. hope I wasn't too goofy. <laughs> you were fantastic. Thank you. <laughs>